I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Well, Happy New Year, and welcome back to this, a new season of Undercurrents from Chatham House. It's great to have you with us. I hope that in the time between now and our last episode in December 2020, that you were able to catch up with some family members despite the disruption of the pandemic and and that you were able to get some time off during the holiday season. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new series. We've got some fascinating topics lined up, some really great speakers, some really exciting new guest hosts as well for the podcast, which I will speak more about at the end of this episode. But without further ado, I'm going to talk to you a bit about the topic that we are covering this week, which concerns the future of UK foreign policy. So as we sit here on the 20th of January 2021, it feels like a particularly apposite time to think about how the UK engages with the world as it emerges from four long years of intense debate about the UK's relationship with the European Union. And now while the effects have not yet been fully felt, a trade agreement has come into force, uh, came into force in early January 2021. And regardless of whether Brexit is seen as a positive or negative move by the UK, Questions remain about how the country should now position itself in an increasingly complex global landscape. Obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to rage across most of the world, albeit with some hope of, of vaccinations continuing to roll out. That's accompanied by the existential threat of climate change and also economic questions such as the technological revolution, which is going to be changing so many different aspects of our society. How the UK positions itself against this context is something that is going to be preoccupying policymakers in and outside of Westminster throughout 2021. So to speak about this, we've got a fantastic guest lined up, Dr. Robin Niblett, who is the director and chief executive of Chatham House, and who's also the author of a new report titled Global Britain, Global Broker, a blueprint for the UK's future, which is available to download on the Chatham House website now. In the report, Robin lays out a vision for how this slogan of Global Britain, which has been bandied about so much over the past few years, can actually be imbued with meaning and how the capabilities the UK possesses can be best directed towards achieving progress on on challenges such as climate change, but also on a range of other policy areas. So I will be back at the end of this episode for a bit more housekeeping, but we'll dive straight into this interview with Robin, which began with me asking him if he could tell us a little bit about the global context for this discussion and the world that Global Britain will be entering at the start of 2021. Well, I describe it in the report as a splintered world because in very quick succession, we have international institutions that are relatively weak and contested. The UN Security Council has become gridlocked in the kind of ways it was back in the Cold War. The World Trade Organization is doing its best as trying to defend things rather than make things happen at the moment because most of the countries involved globally, especially in the COVID context, are thinking about protecting their economies 
rather than opening them up anymore. And it's a world in which the capacity to improve the situation by traditional means, which is generally involved U.S. leadership, strikes me as highly unlikely, even with the uh, inauguration of President Biden as the next president of the uh, United States. We're going to have a USA, uh, not a controversial thing to say, that is uh, going to find it difficult to engage uh, as actively internationally as I know a lot of its appointees with this new administration will want to do, just because there's such a huge challenge at home in America to, if possible, overcome deep political fractures and divisions, and if not, then to have to work and live with them with what will then be a a difficult Congress and that's going to have probably uh, former President Trump on its shoulder all the time critiquing it. So you'll have a U.S. that has to deliver at home and Joe Biden's want to want to show that the Democrats can deliver for their voters at home above all and therefore cautious about overextending itself into big international initiatives. And on the other side of the ledger, you've got China, which is in a a much more assertive mode, partly because it feels the U.S. is on the back foot, partly because President Xi Jinping has a plan, which is for uh, an increasingly economically strong China to reflect that strength in its international voice in institutions or regionally or even globally. We've seen them really pick up the temperature in their disputes with India. We've seen them uh, obviously take a much more assertive stance vis-a-vis Taiwan and Hong Kong, still in the South China Sea, much more present and trying to get its version of the world and of, of global governance into UN institutions, which is why I said a minute ago, you've got this kind of standoff between uh, liberal democracies and China and in a growing number of countries that are willing to take the Chinese route or take the Chinese coin in order to pursue their own interests. And this brings me to the one other point I wanted to mention on the context. It does strike me that for all of this world not entering a new Cold War, I don't think, in in the US-China standoff, there does seem to be a sort of ideological divide between those countries uh, whose governments believe that they should have maximum power centrally controlled, have a weak or non-present civil society, uh, avoid any of the trappings of checks and balances on power of upper houses and lower houses or free media that can that can critique and hold the government to account. There's this idea that a splintered world needs a strong government. We've seen this in, in Turkey, we've seen it in Saudi Arabia, we've seen it in Egypt. We saw it sort of for a while in in Japan under Abe, and we're certainly seeing it under Modi uh, in India at the moment. These are all governments that feel that actually uh, concentrating power to the extent that you can is a good thing, and having a slightly more pliant society is a good thing, whereas that is the reverse of what uh, Western liberal democracies, and Western also includes these days many around the world, from Australia, South Korea and Japan, through to parts of Latin America and Africa, that liberal democracies are trying to keep that space for more accountable and more inclusive governance. And I think this, again, adds to the splintering, two different visions of how countries should be governed so that they can navigate this very splintered and and, and really quite risky world. What do you think the state of the UK's foreign policy capabilities are to deal with this increasingly splintered world that you describe. Brexit is just one factor in this. There are many other elements that would be great to discuss. But do you think that 
broadly speaking, the UK's capacity is freed up in 2021 or no longer constrained by having to act as one with the European Union? Or what's our capacity at the moment? It's a very interesting question. What can the UK do? I mean, the the easy assumption, I suppose, is that the UK is going to be weaker because it has left the safe harbour of being part of one of the big geo-economic actors on the world stage, which is the EU, on trade policy, on regulatory policy, even to some extent on development. You know, Africa is an area that's a good example. The EU has voice. And so by leaving it, and precisely at the moment where the United States is turning inwards and therefore may not you know, stand shoulder to shoulder with the UK or the UK may not be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with the US to compensate for leaving the EU. And when I said that you know, the relationship with China, which was meant to be for the initial global Britain idea that was emerging even before the referendum uh, with David Cameron, there was the idea of a golden era with China that we would be able to take advantage of the commercial opportunities, especially of our service sector with China. But with a more assertive China, you've got a lot more resistance to the UK uh, engaging with China, quite rightly so, amongst the British body politic and the public uh, as a whole. So you add all of these things together, a slightly more protectionist environment because of COVID. And the UK on this global scene, you could say, yeah, is potentially in a weaker position. I, I take a slightly different view, and I say this uh, in the report where I note that actually a splintered world is one in which if the UK handles itself intelligently and strategically, can have a voice and actually be influential because it does bring assets to the table. It is currently the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, depending on where India and and France kind of place themselves. In 2030, the pre-COVID assessments of the OECD and other reputable economic projectors were that the UK would probably remain in sixth or seventh position. Now, you could say COVID, uh, and by the way, that included Brexit assumptions in there. You could say that COVID is going to knock the UK even more, but the UK is going to knock everyone to a certain extent. It's going to knock France, it's going to knock Germany, it's, it's knocking India, it's knocking the US. You know, Maybe the only part of the world that is not particularly uh, or as negatively affected yet has been China, but that won't affect Britain's relative position. Uh, you know, Brazil, which was catching up with the UK, will not catch up any better. So just in terms of raw money, size of economy, you know, assets available, and GDP per capita within that, the UK will still be roughly where it is today. You know, you could, and again, the EU is still where it will be. So not actually that much going to change. On assets for international influence, the UK, uh, and I illustrate this in the report with a bunch of data, will remain in the, at the top of the second tier of countries with the greatest resources to apply to their international activities. India will pop up above the UK on sort of combined defense and foreign aid spending, which are a very, very crude you know, assessment of sort of clout, if you see what I'm saying, on the international stage. Germany, interestingly, uh, its economy continues to grow and spending a fair amount on foreign aid as well. And the UK may be spending a little less uh, in the future than it has been recently. It might just pop up above the UK. But you're going to have the United States, China, and to a certain extent, India in a league of their own. And then you'll have a cluster of countries underneath that in which the UK will be near the top with Germany, Saudi Arabia, France, 
obviously it do to a certain extent, uh, maybe South Korea, all sitting there, equally potentially influential in a geopolitical standpoint. You know, you remember the UK brings some things that even those other countries in that second tier do not. And by the way, you could also say that India does not. The UK is one of the few countries that can combine high, flexible, modern defense forces, uh, and they're increasingly technologically proficient rather than kind of having lots of ships, if you see what I'm saying. They're they're sort of deployable and small and neat. Um, Alongside big development spending, which even if it pops up back to 0.6% of GDP from the 0.5, it's probably going to be compared to the 0.7% it was. Big intelligence services, very important point uh, to note that's not always put in the mix. And a pretty big diplomatic presence. Uh, Diplomacy, I think, has been hit a bit, but I can talk more about that later if you want. But you combine that kind of full spectrum capacity and then throw in the kind of often touted soft power capability of the UK, command of language, present in all big international institutions, multilateral ones, obviously not in the EU anymore, but a strong voice in NATO as well as G20, G7, I could go on with the list, you know the lot, IMF, World Bank, etc. You know, it has got, uh, along with some of its uh, sort of non-governmental capability, strong NGOs, media, uh, language, think tanks, one could add, if you top them up and, and group them and put them on a table, the UK actually stacks up pretty well. Mm-hmm. The difficult thing is what do you do with it? <laughs> you know, can you use it? And uh, as I say in the report, assets do not equal influence per se, uh, as we've discovered many times in, in the history of the world. And that's the interesting challenge for the government. So I'd like to move then to look at a bit more depth at this concept of the global broker as a way perhaps to provide that kind of strategic direction and answer to the question of how we use these assets. So could you tell us a bit about what you mean by global broker and what it would mean for the UK to take up this role? What sort of behaviours would they be enacting in the world? I think there's, there's two parts to it in a way. One is to assess what is important for the UK internationally in the next 10, 20, 30 years, what really matters, and then assess on which of these does the UK have assets that it can bring to the table. And if it does have assets, is it also credible? (laughs) Does it have the credibility to be able to play some type of a role? Mm -hmm. And when you look at those issues, or at least when I look at them, and, and tot up kind of interests resources, credibility, you end up with some pretty big global issues out there. And I lay out kind of six. And one is sort of protecting liberal democracy. Uh, as I said, we're in a world of, a, of an increasingly overt divide uh, on that topic. And I think the UK, as a strong liberal democracy, I know some people will say, oh, Brexit, you know, um, really damaged British democracy. It was certainly a, a, a painful and scarring internal debate, and all the scars were gone for a long time. But actually, I think British democratic institutions came through it very well. And roughly 50% of the UK population wanted a different relationship with the EU. That's a brutally difficult thing to do when you're a 50-50 country. Yeah. The UK ended up leaving, could have just as easily ended up maybe just staying. But I think the way it handled the process means it's got the credibility over and above its long-standing visibility of, of a kind of checks and balances approach, strong media, strong civil society. In any case, I think the UK on protecting democracy, and I use that phrase very carefully, protecting democracy, 
has the capability. I think we're not in the era where you can go out promoting it around the world because, A, we've got to fix ourselves at home first before we think about promoting democracy around the rest of the world. Um, and in a way, you know, we need to be a little more humble about all of this. But I think the, the idea of the UK with its strong role in NATO and therefore helping protect democracies, in particular in Europe, and potentially in partnership with the United States with a Biden administration that has put protecting democracy at the head of the table, could actually play quite a valuable role. Now, when I mention, I mean, this is the way to do it, to describe what I'm trying to say, when I mention that, that we have the credibility, um, I think that we have the, the capacity to do this and the interests, uh, how do we do it? I mentioned Biden. You know, the UK can't stand up there and say, follow us, you know, we're the model. Um, even to any other democracy, people would say, well, go away, you know, you might have done okay, but that was for you. But uh, Joe Biden's come up with this idea that he's put out there in the lead up to the uh, election, which by all intents and purposes should take place, this idea of a summit for democracies. And if this takes place, it's meant to be more about protecting democracies. And I'm thinking the UK, given how much the UK has gone, its, the US has gone its plate, could play a role with this G7 presidency coming up this year in trying to blend together the US idea of protecting democracy, the interest many other countries have, and try to start developing an agenda where liberal democracies would start to break out. How do we protect our democracies? How do we make them strong? How do we control disinformation, misinformation? So what you'd have is a, a role of Britain being a kind of broker, a trusted voice in different fora, maybe under the G7 umbrella with other countries involved, maybe helping act as some prelude meetings to the Biden administration's summit for democracies, mm. um, maybe by making this a priority issue inside NATO discussions around cyber and so on, and protecting against disinformation. UK says, look, we're credible. We've got a seat at a lot of these tables. Let's start bringing people together around that agenda. And I think the UK can play similar roles, and I won't go right now into them in the same detail. It can play similar roles in, in kind of five other areas. One is on promoting peace and security, in particular around its neighborhood, around sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa, where, again, the, the interests are clear. Otherwise, all those countries are going to be sending their problems to us and they're nearby. We have the credibility, one of the biggest aid spenders, but we also knit it together with defense. And we could, again, play a kind of brokery role, perhaps through the World Bank and, and, and our strong voice there and through other institutions. Ditto on global health, where the UK is one of the biggest funders into global health vaccine, the Gavi program, the new initiative for pandemic response, CEPI. The UK has been one of the biggest donors into that as well. It's National Health Service, which has been, you know, uh, obviously under a lot of strain. But these elements, again, mean the UK could, within the WHO and other places, play a brokering role to move uh, that issue forward. So health is another global health, an area where I think we could play a very important role going forward. I talk about cyber defense because I think, again, in that space, the UK's interests are clear, but its capabilities, GCHQ and our intelligence services and the creation of a new cyber command uh, and a cyber uh, office, in essence, that gives cyber defense capabilities is going to be particularly important as well. So I think, you know, if you put those issues together, cyber, health, if you throw in to that as well, the topics of peace and security, democracy preparedness, you start to get an agenda that is really 
all areas where you can do brokering uh, together. Uh, two other areas which are going to be, I think, critical for the UK and where it can play a brokering role are one absolutely front and centre on the agenda for the UK government this year, which is climate change. The UK has obvious interests in fixing it. It has real credibility in this space because of its domestic legislation and the huge steps it's taken to increase its renewable energy proportion of its of its energy production. And this year, it is co-chairing COP26, which is a critical meeting to re-establish after five years new commitments to meet the two degrees centigrade. So uh, the UK, whatever happens, is sitting in a global brokering role. And this time, again, it can work at least with a constructive US administration under Biden, but it's kept very useful avenues open to China on the climate change agenda throughout the period of the Cameron government uh, through May into uh, Johnson. So I think climate is an obvious space. The last one, which is a bit more interesting, is, is on the global economy, because the UK is, you know, is so open to global economic activity, and the government's put itself forward as a free trading nation. The implication being that Britain is going to make free trade, open global economy, one of its top calling cards for global Britain. I think a British government cannot ignore the global economy as one of its top six global goals. But I think it needs to place itself in a different space. And what I mean by this is that, you know, A, there's not a lot of public opinion support for just open, free, you know, pull down the barriers trade. B, there are not a lot of other countries that are open to it either right now. What there is, is real concern about whether globalization is fair and whether it's inclusive and whether it's transparent. And here, the UK, to be honest, has to do some homework, but it started doing it. We have the city, which is one of the top financial centers of the world, but we're also one of the countries that oversees a lot of overseas territories and crown dependencies that are amongst some of the most opaque on the flows of money that accompany the flows of investment and trade. And what the UK, I think, should be doing is picking up on the Cameron G8 presidency back in 2013 and really making a push on tax transparency, on corporate registration transparency, put itself forward as one of the brokers because it's got the skin in the game. It is one of those countries that that is on the front line of it, to try to make sure that we don't lose public support for globalization and an open global economy by making it more transparent and more fair. And the OECD would be a natural partner for the UK in this space. So those are the kind of six big ideas that I wanted to, to put out there. And I think in all of them, the UK has the capacity to, to do a brokering role, and it would be probably welcome. I wanted to ask, obviously, in your role at Chatham House, at least before the pandemic, you were sort of constantly on a plane from capital to capital, speaking to people abroad about all of these major questions. I wondered if you could give us your take on how much demand there is for the UK to play this sort of role. I mean, I've seen in the aftermath of the report's publication, there's been some interesting commentary. Some people questioning whether the fact that the UK is so entrenched within the institutions of the liberal international order might lead to some scepticism on parts of states who traditionally have not been part of that club about whether the UK can really help them out or engage with them productively. And then on the other side of the coin, there's a, a question about perceptions by other states of declining UK power. 
um, and influence post-Brexit. So, I mean, I don't know how you feel about either of those kind of characterizations, but do you get the sense that there is space and demand for the UK to play this kind of brokering role? I think this is a critical question because, you know, I can set up the the potential yeah, for this role to be played, the reasons for it and why the UK could do this. But as you quite rightly know, can it and will there be the demand out there um, more than can it? Because you, you put your question in two pieces, and I think they're both important to address. Is the UK too much on one side of the ledger to be able to be seen as an effective broker? I think that, look, the Swiss play a brokering role in that behind-the-scenes crisis management. The Norwegians have done a very good job in this as well, in that crisis management brokering role. Mm-hmm. The Swiss, by also having in Geneva all of the um, a lot of the big UN agencies, especially the technical agencies, also kind of situated in a place where at least those discussions take place in a Swiss environment, even though they're not led by by the Swiss government. I think what I'm putting out here is the idea, given Britain's size, which is so much bigger than Switzerland or Norway, and given, given its resources, is that it's, you know, it will really sit at a big table. If you're going to sit at a big table brokering, you just can't be entirely neutral. It's better to carry one half of the debate with you and say, look, I'm bringing to the table, let's call it the liberal democratic camp. Yeah, I'm in that camp. They're with me already. I don't have to fight to bring them to the table. I've got credibility with them. And this is why I talk in the paper about how important it is to have a good relationship with the EU and EU member states, how important it is to have a good constructive relationship with the US and with other liberal democracies. And I play up the need to focus on on Asia Pacific in particular, Southeast Asia, Australia, Japan, South Korea, some of those democracies over there. And by the way, there are others individual countries, kind of mid-sized ones, who feel a bit left out at the moment in this splintered world. You know, Mexico, uh, Indonesia, you know, definitely the the Asia-Pacific ones I mentioned who are struggling as well with the US that's retrenching, but who've got skin in the game of the current order. I think the UK is stronger to play its global role if it says, we come with one part of of the camp with us, but you can trust us to reach out fairly to you, of the others, if you see what I'm saying, uh, in a constructive way. Look, in Africa, you've got the Commonwealth. There are linkages and connections there where the UK is at the table. It doesn't lead the Commonwealth. I mean, the Queen is, is kind of titularly the head of the Commonwealth, but the UK government has to play alongside other governments and on the agenda and so on. But it means it's got that opening there. So far, the UK has managed to have that relationship with China such that it has not got itself caught on the other side of a Cold War with China, such that it probably can still play a brokering role. Certainly, we'll test it out with climate this year. You know, India is a complicated country. I talk quite a bit about it in the report about the, the risks of over-relying on India's capacity to come and stand alongside other liberal democracies in some type of new grouping mm. that will drive global change forward or even allow liberal democracies to protect themselves against the non-liberal powers of this world. Because I think India's got so much on its plate internally, and it's historically been very skeptical of being corralled into the Western camp, as I put it in the report. It still has, I think, a sort of non-aligned mentality, which I'm not criticizing. It makes a lot of sense for India, but it means that it's joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, you know, with China, with China and Russia. At the same time as being part of an Indo-Pacific Quad 
with Australia, uh, the US and Japan. So I just think that what the UK needs to do is understand that other countries aren't, even democracies won't always be bang aligned with it. And non-democracies don't need to look at Britain skeptically just because it's a democracy and it's in the Western camp. The question is, can it be constructive? And because it's outside the EU, and this is back to one of your earlier questions, it's no longer already tapped or trapped into an EU position on everything. Mm-hmm. It can skate a little bit more between EU positions, US positions, reaching out to a Chinese or an Indian position, and take advantage of all those diplomatic and other assets to do something interesting. So, look, it's to be tested. But I don't think the idea that others go, oh, well, you know, you're a former empire. You know, what this is really going to come down to, therefore, is about tone. And this brings me to your second question. You know, is Britain declining? Can it really do it? You know, the, the decline argument comes out when we as Brits over-egg our capability. And, you know, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm critical of a triumphalist global Britain message because I don't think it matches up. It overplays what are already are our strong capabilities. If we overplay them, we actually weaken them. It's better to, you know, as they say, talk softly, what with a big stick. Now, we're you know, not as big as the US and our stick isn't that big, but it is bigger than many other people's. <laughs> um, and if we can be a bit more uh, understated, play a little bit more to the stereotype that I think people want to hear of Britain, which is understated, behind the scenes, not hogging the limelight, you know, then actually uh, it sits better inside that Britain at the top of the second tier uh, message. If we look like we're putting ourselves forward as a miniature great power that can sit shoulder to shoulder with the biggest powers, which is at least an implicit message, at least to some of the global Britain stuff, I just think then it just feeds into those who want to say, oh, you're not what you thought we were before. What gives you the right to tell me, blah, blah, blah. You then actually undermine the very role you could be playing. So I think this is more about tone than about capability. One more question that I wanted to get in quickly, which is just a question around the potential risks of contradictions between these pillars that you've outlined and the difficulties of actually pursuing brokering roles on all fronts. Obviously, there's not going to be effective global climate action without serious engagement from China and action from China. So on the one hand, you're sort of saying, well, what we need to do is we need to find ways to engage with the likes of China, Russia, other major emitters on the climate question. But at the same time, we need to be pursuing a brokering role in the sphere of promoting liberal democratic values, human rights, and that will enforce us, in a sense, to, to be confronting those countries on other issues. Another example I can think of is peace and security, that big pillar, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, if we're talking about that, how to reconcile that imperative to try and pursue those sort of principles, but also a recognition about the economic demands of arms sales to Middle Eastern states, from, for example, which is often sort of much criticised here in the UK. So I just wondered, finally, how you see UK foreign policymakers approaching this landscape in a way that you can kind of avoid those contradictions, whether you think that's a problem, and if so, how you navigate that. Look, this is the the business of of diplomacy for any country is is managing contradictions between short-term interests and and long-term goals. What I would say about this is that 
in very on your first example, though, this is why I talk so emphatically about protecting democracy as the main goal. Because if you don't ensure that the liberal democracies remain strong internally and able to stand together, actually it's going to be more difficult for the UK to play the brokering role than over with the non-democracies, because your own camp is weak. And you, you, you're not in a position to then be able to really have constructive conversations. So what it's therefore about is predictability, because a country like China knows that Britain's a democracy. I mean, this is no big surprise. Yes, obviously, they'll. if you insist that China has to be a democracy, that is going beyond either what's possible or capable. But you can quite fairly critique China for its treatment of its Uyghur minority, as the British government has done very effectively, or for imposing an overly draconian national security law and implementing it in a draconian way in Hong Kong, you know, being true to your principles and those issues, providing you are clear and predictable in your messaging and consistent, need not prevent you from then being able to reach out to China on the climate agenda, which, by the way, is in China's interest as well. China mm. wants to be engaged in that conversation. And China doesn't have a contradiction between being a communist state at home and investing and putting lots of money into, let's say, extreme capitalist forms of economies on the other side. I think all countries live with those contradictions. It just requires very intelligent diplomacy to get the messaging right. The danger, I think, with China is that if you put them in the enemy camp, push them over to it's, it is a new Cold War. And we need to set up a kind of alliance and a line in the sand. This has been some critiques in my report of some people saying, this is a moment of realignment. This is a moment to have an Indo-Pacific alliance, which the UK is on one side and China's on the other. If you make it strategic, then yes, you won't be able to manage those contradictions because the Chinese will say, well, why would I give you anything on climate change when clearly I am an enemy of yours? Whereas opposed to critiquing particular aspects of what China does that are wrong and, and being clear about them and explicit about them but trying to leave open that space for coordination. So that's the first. I think it's probably pretty clear in my report that I do not prioritize British diplomacy in Middle East and North Africa, which has traditionally been a space there, because I feel those countries, uh, especially in the Gulf, uh, in North Africa and Egypt, are on their own journeys. They actually have the resources to be on their own journey as well. And uh, I think our role is to make sure you know, that security conflict doesn't break out in that part of the world because it will spill over into others. And if there's an Iran-Saudi conflict, that would be pretty bad for global economy and global stability. If Egypt blew up or North Africa got into worse position, we'd have all sorts of migration. But our capacity to really drive change in that part of the world, I think, is limited. And it is not where we will get the biggest commercial advantages for the economy. We're going to get a lot more out of Asia-Pacific. We may get more out of Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa, where the population hubs are, if they grow. So I would say we should not be over-egging. I mean, I would be cautious on the arms sales if they get to the point where they're undermining human rights, as they were on Yemen. Because actually, you're gaining a very short, narrow bit of commercial advantage for a loss of a big global goal. And you can compensate for that loss through actually building up other parts of your global economic interaction that are much more productive in the long term. Thank you, Robin. Very short last question. Obviously, we're sat here at the start of 2021. As you've said, massive year for summits, multilateral gatherings of one kind or another. Um, and I know we're not in the business of making predictions, but I just wondered if you could indulge me slightly and just sort of say if we had this conversation in January 2022, do you think that 
we are going to see a more coherent, tangible vision of what global Britain means? And do you think that those summits are going to be the opportunity to really sort of drive those forward? I think the summits create a action, you know, forcing set of events that given the fact the UK is going to be forced to play a broker ball, that it will need the EU on side, it will need to keep China in the mix, that, you know, it's got two big tests, one for its role brokering within liberal democracies, which is its G7 chairmanship, mm-hmm. and one for brokering across between the liberal democracies and the not, which is the COP26. And, you know, my impression of Boris Johnson is that you know, he is learning on this job. I mean, his natural go-to place is the ebullient, boosterist, you know, approach, and he's proud of it. But I think COVID is reminding him of the limits of that particular approach. And perhaps the domestic adaptation will feed over then into a a role-playing, along with the government and a a very talented uh, civil service, to actually use these two as testers for the whole six being part of the future agenda. Look, enormously difficult, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Robin Niblett, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope that you found that interview as fascinating as I did. It's a really thought-provoking report, which I would encourage you to download from the Chatham House website now. The link is in the show notes for this episode. Thanks very much again to Dr. Robin Niblett for joining me for that conversation. And just to leave you with a few points of housekeeping, really. Obviously, in this episode, it was just me as your host, but that's not going to be the case for the remainder of this series. Instead, over the next few months, I'm going to be joined by some really exciting guest hosts who are all colleagues of mine at Chatham House and who will be bringing their own individual slant to who we invite and the kind of topics that we cover. I'm really excited to be working with them and it's it's going to be really fun um, and hopefully really interesting for you guys as well, listeners at home. I will give you more detail on that in our next episode, which will be coming out in a couple of weeks. If you've liked what you've heard today, then please, I would encourage you to subscribe to the show on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this and to leave us a review because it makes it so much easier for other listeners to discover us if we get a higher amount of ratings and reviews. Uh, I really appreciate your help with this. If you want to hear more from Undercurrents, we've got a back catalogue now of over 70 episodes, which again will be available wherever you're listening to this. So please do check those out. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more great interviews for you. Till then, keep well. And thanks as ever for listening to Undercurrents.